0: General McCaffrey, uh, the boss of the failed war on drugs, keeps saying, he says, industrial hemp is a stocking horse for marijuana. Well, at, first of all, it, it, it dilutes marijuana if they're by, side by side and cross pollination, but he wouldn't know that. But one-third, <laughs> one-third of 1% THC? Why, even General McCaffrey couldn't get high on that. <laughs> Let me tell you. One of the benefits of a certain campaign is once and for all to get this off the DEA prescribed list so that farmers can grow the most
1: versatile plant in the history of the world. This is part two of three on our series on John Shaver. If you missed part one, I highly recommend you go back and listen to it now. Solar power is not a new technology. In fact, the ability to harness power from the sun was first observed in 1839 by Alexander Edmund Becquerel. In 1881, Charles Fritz created the first commercial solar panel. In 1939, the first modern solar panel was developed by Russell Ohl. And in 1957, Bell Labs finally made them efficient enough to actually use. But with the world's power infrastructure so heavily incorporated to oil, gas, coal, and nuclear energy, there was no market for them. NASA started using them in space to run satellites without a power source, and the Navy used them far out at sea. But for years and years, this technology struggled to find a home, even on the fringes, until that day in Willits, California in 1978. When John Schaefer looked at one in the trunk of David Lem's Porsche and said, oh yeah, we could sell these. These are not meant to be thorough histories, and I am not an expert on any of these topics. Just a confused and interested millennial looking to the past to find some answers for the future. This is The Inheritance Project. Just
0: a a quick diversion before I move forward to um, Mendocino was when I was talking about smoking marijuana for the first time in Berkeley. Well, it turns out after about two months at the end of the first quarter in Berkeley, everyone on the floor smoked pot. And there were some people that were doing speed and people doing heroin. And I, I wasn't into any of that. But for some reason towards the end of the quarter there we went down to walk down and get some hot dogs a top dog and we came back and we saw looked up at the eighth floor at the top room at putnam hall where the dorm was and there were the flashlights going around but we were all pretty stoned i don't what's going on here so we got in the elevator went up to the room got on the eighth floor and sure enough there were police in the room someone had turned us in and i had you know, maybe a half an ounce of <laughs> marijuana in the room, and they arrested me. But This uh-huh. was 1967, so I was the first person ever arrested at any of University of California for possession of marijuana, and I was expelled from the dorms, and Whoa. I was expelled from the university for having half an ounce of marijuana. Wow! <laughs> so wow. it was kind of a... a
1: Did they go back and uh, expunge your record now that
0: it's legal? Yeah, it got, it got <laughs> expunged. But I remember my father flew up. That night thinking, oh my God, my son has gone into drugs and he's, you know, next step is heroin and, you know, this is, this is horrible. Yeah. What have I done wrong? I remember the lawyer at the time, Jim Newhouse, telling him, Chat, don't worry about a thing. Within two or three years, this drug is going to be completely legal. It's only <laughs> marijuana. And sure enough, it was like 53 years or something right.
1: before California legalized it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. To paraphrase Peter Turchin's controversial book, War and Peace and War, civilizations are made and changed on the fringes. All change is made not from the center, but from the frontiers of civilization. And John store, that was mainly started for people on the communes, finding their own rules and ways of living, he soon found that his interests started to overlap with those of another group of entrepreneurs nearby.
0: These had come out of, of L.A. They were originally designed for the space industry, yeah, when they couldn't get their wires in space, but no one had ever sold them domestically. Were um, they
1: hard to get uh, a hold of? I mean, were they being produced in a in numbers that made them easy to get your hands on? Or well, they- I
0: think they were just beginning to because they didn't. This guy was out looking for a market, and right. he found it with us. And then six months or a year after us, there's another guy up in Redway Alternative Energy Engineering who discovered them and he started selling them. And there were these guys over in grass valley called Indip- the earth store and independent power company and they started selling them so the market gradually developed and joel davidson in arkansas started a co-op to buy them the marijuana growers in the hills who were none of them knew how many there were it, in hindsight pretty much everyone was everyone that came in our store was. they were really the only ones that could afford the solar panels The solar industry started growing up because of these marijuana growers in the hills who supported it. It wouldn't have really taken off. It got its start in Mendocino and Humboldt counties because of them, and it wouldn't have taken off without them. And then the solar industry supported those growers at the same time, so it was a really symbiotic thing. They kind of co-evolved together from 78 until where they are now. So, you know, the first we grew 1976, I think I grew one plant, 77, three plants. And then in 78, the whole time we got together, and we grew a thousand plants.
1: Oh, wow, that's a big jump.
0: <laughs> uh, these were only, like, these were like thin little sticks about right. a foot apart. I got hardly any.
1: This jump in solar sales also corresponded to the budding industry of marijuana growing in what is now called the Emerald Triangle. The Emerald Triangle includes Mendocino, Humboldt, and Trinity counties and is known for growing some of the best weed in the world. John remembers empty trucks being dropped off at closing time. They were loaded at night with irrigation systems, bud meal, bone meal, lawn fosco, books on how to grow the best marijuana under lights, and driven out before dawn with tarps tied down flat, concealing nothing illegal but definitely suspicious. Growers had been cultivating crops there since the 1960s, and all throughout the summer of love, a massive migration of hippies came north of San Francisco. They called it the Great Hippie Trail, and it brought weed strains from all over the world, including Mexico and South America, and as far away as Kurdistan, Nepal, and South Africa. It was a movement of mostly white post-war baby boomers, fighting the values and conventional systems of their time. And although there was your typical quote-unquote drug dealers involved, most of these growers believed in the spiritual and medicinal use of these drugs, and they grew it and sold it for those higher purposes. It is often said locally that everyone in this region is either directly or indirectly reliant on the growth and sales of marijuana. Ukiah is a remote area and a great place to get lost in. And as a city commissioned and paid-for slogan says, it's far out but nearby. I have the mug to prove it.
0: And that's what's so interesting about Mendocino County is when we threw out real goods, I always used to have the saying that our, our customers were primarily outlaws and misfits. Yeah. <laughs> and, and renegades. <laughs> yeah. And that's because of that environment it was an extension of the commune that I lived on. It was outlaws and misfits trying to create their own internal structure and by creating your own you are much more in tune with what those rules are because you live them from the ground up and you're not yeah. put under a, a false sense of societal rules that you had nothing to do in making right you know which i think a lot of and you know uh, why
1: they exist
0: yeah Almost. you know why they exist you know yeah. what the results are when they don't exist
1: and you know The weed industry was in for a long fight, even in Mendocino County. In 1972, with Prop 19, California was the first state to put legalization on the ballot. It failed, and they tried again and again. In 1996, the Compassionate Use Act made medical marijuana legal. In 2000, Ukiah residents helped pass Prop G that allowed six plants to be grown and eight ounces to be cultivated per person for medical purposes. In 2008, the year I graduated college... Prop B passed, upping that number to 25 plants per medical card. And that year it was said that the revenue from these plants ballooned to $1.5 billion just in Mendocino County, making up two-thirds of the county's economy. He opened a second store in 1982 in Ukiah and a third in Santa Rosa, California in 84. But a falling out with his partner in 85 forced him to sell out his stock in the business. And John found himself retired at 35, not knowing what would come next.
0: After my partner and I, in 1985, had a falling out, Uh, I sold the business to him in 85. He went bankrupt in a year. I came back and took it over in 86 and started it on my own in my garage up in Gedeville. And then I built it back up to a business, a mail order business, started it (laughs) as a mail order business.
1: It's a very selfish question. But uh, when you had left the business and then that year when you built it back up in your garage those years, you know, I think a lot of people, especially, you know, myself included, have been kind of forced into retirement this last year and we'll have to kind of rebuild our lives. And I wonder if you have any kind of words of wisdom for people who, as you know, as we emerge this next year. Of, of what it takes to to remake yourself in your thirties
0: um, I, I, for me, I think massive tenacity not not giving up at all and knowing what you want and just working so hard that you know you 're going to get there and not taking no for an answer and never stopping i mean people people who are critical of me including my wife, claim that you know i 'm a bulldog and i Grab something by the jugular, and I won't let go. That, um, or I, I'm, I hound people. I yeah. keep pressing. And I ask them, "Is it done yet? Is it done yet? Where is it? Where is it?" And I, you know, that's all. I know it's always been a weakness of mine, if I push too hard on people, and I can be very demanding. And you know, I heard that from thousands of employees over the years. But I think <laughs> that's that's the key to getting things done. I mean, it's the, the trite squeaky wheel gets the grease, and yeah. Uh, I, I think anyone can become anything they want if they try hard enough and and you don't give you give up. If you have an obstacle in one place, you come at it from a different direction, or you find another place to, to get into it. It's uh, a lot of people will, will give up way too soon and you know fall apart. But you you, you just got to keep
1: going. Yeah.
0: There's always a way. There's
1: always a way. Huh. What other choice do you have really? Yeah, at yeah. some point. He took his own advice after a year of starting over, and after his business partner had run real goods into the ground and gone bankrupt, John bought it back from him and started all over in his garage as a mail order business, a place that many of us have been doing business out of this year. Soon, with sales from his catalog all over the country, he built his business back up bit by bit, and he started to think of expanding. So his attention turned to putting his vision into practice, to build a place where customers could come and see with their own eyes all of these technologies in action. A self-sustaining, self-heating, self-cooling business that was powered only by wind and sun and water. But to do this, he would need to raise some money. Should he take the company public, sell out to Wall Street and trade openly on the market? Well, there just had to be another way.
0: And then we opened the store on Mazzoni Street in 91 and Earth Day 1990 was a big watershed event because that's when recycling started getting popular and alternative energy started getting popular and water conservation, composting, toilets. So that was a real boon for our business. And then things started growing and growing and growing. In the 90s we went from 2 million a year to 6 million to 10 million a year in sales. And right around 92, uh, a guy came up from San Francisco and said he he was just pioneering this new system called direct public offerings, where you could raise money from your customers uh, that you would never have to pay back, and that the customers would own the part of the business, and no investment bankers were involved, so you didn't have to pay a fee to investment bankers. And I said, well. This is too good to be true. Where do I sign up? Are you <laughs> yeah. Sure, this works. So, sure enough, I, we went and we did this. I think it was the first or one of the very first uh, direct public offerings called the DPO, where we put in our catalog a little what's called a tombstone, saying a million shares, five dollars a share. Um, be, become part of the company. And idea being. If someone owns a share of Coke, they're never going to buy Pepsi again. So once they they became our customers, we would have them locked in for life. And I remember how exciting it was. My father was up at the time. He was mid-80s by then, and uh, he was opening the envelopes. Huge stacks of mail would come in. $5, John. (laughs) $1,000. $500. He was all excited. So we ended up raising like a million on the first offering and then 3 million on the second, 4 million on the third, so we'd raised $10 million over three or four years.
1: Real Goods believed that business should not be so complicated that the average person couldn't understand its workings. And they called this buying stock, quote, off the Wall Street grid. And what we wanted to do with this
0: money was uh, we wanted to create a place where we could put all of our principles into practice in, in one location and do it right from the very start and show all the environmental practices from, from scratch. To me, that kind of epitomized the, the pinnacle of what I had tried to create for all these years, which was promotion, exaltation, inspiration of all of these new technologies and appropriate ways of living, sensible ways of living, all in one place where you could walk from the Cobb hobbit hut over to the bicycle generators to the hops T P to the agave cooling tower to the store that was made of straw bales uh, to biodiesel to the charging tank you know, to the charging stations for the electric vehicles to all the alternative structures and the hemp house and the yurts and it, it, it was all all there and because it was all there, we drew people from all different walks of experimentation that would come and, all, and want to do something, and I, I would always say yes. You
1: know. In the next and final episode of this series, John takes his cottage industry business global again, and his stockholders help him turn a dream into a reality. When he designs and creates the Solar Living Institute, you know, I, yeah. <laughs> the only
0: thing that I ever got turned down on, which I kind of regretted, was was a guy up in Ferndale who made s- small gauge rail you know, trains. We were going to have him come and build a train that went around the Solar Living Center with a one single oh, track, and the yeah. board turned me down on that, said, "Ah, oh, John, you're just a dreamer. You know, that'll never happen." <laughs>
1: You're not gonna get yourself a toy train, John. <laughs> no.
0: But yeah, it was it was an amazing place. Yeah.
1: I'd like to thank John Schaefer for talking with me, and special thanks to Maria Gallardon at TUC Radio for helping us get Ralph Nader's audio. See you next time.